Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son who came to seek and to save the lost. We thank you for him seeking us and purchasing us on Calvary. Lord, we, I don't think we pause and consider enough just what our Lord purchased on that cross. He, he not only purchased our pardon, but he, he purchased the, the repentance and faith um, that was necessary for us to receive that free gift of salvation that he accomplished on that cross. And not only that, but he purchased our perseverance in the faith that, that ensured that we will cling to him by faith persistently and perseveringly until the very end. He, he loses none of those he has purchased for himself. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have purchased at Calvary. And we can rest fully upon the work, the saving work that you have done. Lord, help us to rest in you every day. Help us to value you above all else, Lord. And through your word this morning, may we come to a deeper understanding and love for you. And may we be encouraged, Lord. We, we still fall so often into sin, Lord. We still stumble so often and are, are allowing things to hinder us that we should not. But we thank you that you've begun a good work in us. And, and Father, through your Son, you will be faithful to finish that good work. Lord, build us up in our faith, we pray. And if there's anybody here this morning who has not yet placed their faith and trust in Christ, may you draw them to your Son today. May you grant them that gift of, of faith and repentance that they may turn from sin and run to Christ for salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we'll likely return to Ephesians 6 um, in, in coming weeks, uh, but today we're turning from that chapter, we're turning from the subject of family roles and parenting to the matter of the work of the Spirit in our lives and how that relates to our assurance of salvation. Uh, one of the questions submitted had to do with what the activity of the Spirit in our lives looks like, why it is that some people seem to experience more of the Holy Spirit in their lives than others, and does that lack of experience call into question our salvation? So we're going to, to look at that this morning. Uh, we're going to seek the Scriptures, what they have to say about these matters. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, in verses 15 to 20, Jesus gives us a principle. And I just want you to listen to what he says. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. As Christians, we rightly use that principle to examine our own lives to see whether or not we are in the faith. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul challenges us to 
examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. And we can use that principle of a bad tree bearing bad fruit, a good tree bearing good fruit to check ourselves. If I am in Christ, if I have been made a new creature in Christ, or in other words, if I have been made a good tree, I can expect that there will be good fruit being produced in my life. But as Christians, we can struggle and we can worry and we can fear when we don't see the abundance of fruit that we expect to see in our lives. And we can start comparing ourselves with other believers. And we can see the Spirit working in their lives in amazing ways. And then we look at ourselves and we think, I'm just not seeing it. What's, what's wrong with me? Why is that not happening in my life? Do I have the Holy Spirit? Am I saved? And today and next week, we're going to go to the Bible to find answers to three specific questions. And I wrote those questions down on the outlines. We're only going to look at the first question this morning. But we're going to take that first question in three different steps, three stages to work through the answering of this first question. And that question is, what activity of the Spirit should the believer expect to see in their lives? In thinking about the Spirit's activity in our lives, along with trying to discern our own spiritual condition, it's very important that we know what we should be looking for. If I think that the Spirit's work in my life means that I'm going to have a mountaintop experience every single week, then I am very quickly going to become very discouraged because that is not a biblical expectation. But what does the Bible say we should expect? How does the Holy Spirit work in our lives? What does that look like if indeed I'm saved, if indeed I have the Holy Spirit in me? What does that look like? Well, I think first of all we need to consider what the beginning of the Spirit's work in our lives is. What is that first saving action of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And what does that result in? And we're going to work our way up to that. First, we need to understand what we were as unbelievers. Because if we don't understand our spiritual condition as unbelievers, we're going to struggle to see how significant that first saving act of the Holy Spirit was in our lives. So let's first think about who we were as unbelievers. The Bible teaches that before we came to know Christ, we were dead in sin. And I'm just going to rattle off a few verses that teach this. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1, he's writing to believers and he's describing to them what they were like before they came to know Christ. And this is what he says to them. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, again, he tells believers what they were before God saved them. And this is what he says. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So that is who we were as unbelievers. We were dead to God. We were hostile to God. And you can actually turn with me to this next one, Romans 
chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verses 7 through 8. Let me back up to verse 6. Romans 8 verse 6, Paul says, For the mind set on the flesh, that's descriptive of the unbeliever, the mind set on the flesh. Paul says the mind set on the flesh is death, but, speaking of the believer, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot, or those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Flip back a few pages to chapter 3 of the same letter. Romans 3. In this section, Paul has been demonstrating that everyone is under sin, Jew and Gentile alike. And look at what he says about unbelievers. Look at verse 11, how he describes them. There is, chapter 3, verse 11, none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Then drop down to verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That was who we were as unbelievers. There was nothing within us that would lean us toward seeking the Lord. There was nothing that would draw us from our hearts to seek Him. We had no fear of Him. We did not understand what He required or, or what was so amazing about Him. We did not want Him. And it's because of this reality that in John's Gospel, Chapter 6, verse 44, as Jesus is speaking to the multitudes who he just fed from a few loaves and fish, and they were looking for a, a meal. They weren't really interested in Jesus himself. They were interested in the free meals he could give them. This is what he said to that group of unbelievers. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can. No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's because of our deadness that we cannot come to him in repentant faith. We do not have that ability. Everything we want is wrapped up in sin. We don't want God as unbelievers. So the obvious question is, how in the world do any of us end up turning from sin and coming to Christ in faith? If I'm dead to God, how does that come about? How do I come to the point that I want him, that I believe in him, that I turn from sin and run to him. Well, God has to cause us to be born again in order for that to happen. God has to take out our heart of stone that is dead to him, and he has to replace it with a heart of flesh that beats with faith and repentance toward him. That is how we come to faith. It is when God takes out a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that is what has been done for you. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3, where Jesus speaks about this reality. But he uses a different word picture here. He speaks of it as being born again. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of it as removing the heart of stone, giving the heart of flesh. 
Jesus speaks of it in terms of being born again. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, has come to Jesus in the night to, to inquire of him. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, how do we gain entrance into the kingdom of God? It is through faith in Jesus Christ. Without God causing us to be born again and thereby granting us the faith to believe in him, we will not see his kingdom, let alone enter it. Verse 5 of this same chapter. Nicodemus is confused by this. Verse 4, he asks, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus here describes the believer's first experience of the Holy Spirit's saving activity in his or her life. This first experience of the Spirit's working in our lives happens at the moment of conversion, when the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again, and the first breaths of that new life in Christ that you take are breaths of repentance and faith. I had the blessing of being in the room and at the side of my wife both times our sons were born. And when the doctor pulled our son out of his mother, there was a flurry of activity as the nurses gathered around him and they tried to clear his airways so that he could breathe. And as I'm seeing this happen, I'm nervously waiting to hear something. What am I hoping to hear very soon? Cry. I'm hoping to hear him cry because when he cries, I know he's breathing and he's going to be okay. Well, something very similar happens when the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. When we are birthed into that new spiritual existence, the first spiritual breaths we take as newborn babes in Christ are the breaths of repentance and faith. And we keep taking those spiritual breaths for the rest of our lives as believers. I'm wanting you to see here that at its most foundational level, that is the activity of the Holy Spirit that we should expect to see in our lives and in the lives of other believers. Just as my physical breathing bears witness to the fact that I have been physically born, so a life that is characterized by repentance and faith in Christ bears witness to the fact that I have been spiritually reborn. So when we are considering the question of whether or not the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, the question is not, do I have these mountaintop experiences? No, the essential question to ask is this, do I repent? When the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin, do I confess my sin to God? 
Do I seek his forgiveness? Do I desire and seek his help to turn from this sin? Do I desire to live for him? That is repentance, that turning in your heart from sin to God. Another essential question that really is the flip side of that coin of repentance is, do I have faith? Repentance and faith are just two sides of the same coin. Do I have faith? That is, do I abandon all efforts to save myself? And do I trust in Jesus alone to save me from my sins and from the wrath of God? Do I willingly submit to his total rule over my life? And do I treasure him above all else? That is faith. Repentance and faith follow our rebirth just as surely as breathing in and breathing out follow our physical birth. Where there is no breath, there is no life. Where there is no repentance and faith, there is no spiritual life. Just as your physical life involves breathing in and breathing out every day, so your new life in Christ involves repenting and believing every day because that is the heart of flesh that God has put inside of you. It is a heart that beats with beats of repentance and faith. So that in its most basic form is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If I'm repenting and believing, I can only attribute that to the fact that God through his Holy Spirit has caused me to be born again. If that activity is not there, then I don't know him yet. Now, what follows that first saving activity of the Holy Spirit? This brings us to the second part of answering this question. We're going to consider the actions of the Holy Spirit in our lives that follow that first action of being born again. There are various fruits, there are various good deeds that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives once he has caused us to be born again. But before we get into examining those fruits and examining our own lives to see if those fruits are present, we need to pause here so that we can get our feet planted firmly on the gospel. We need to plant our feet firmly there because when it comes to examining ourselves, we can so easily slip back into depending on our works to be acceptable to God. We can so subtly step off of the gospel and start depending on our own efforts. We need to take care to never do that. So what is the gospel? Jesus, the Son of God, lived what kind of life? A perfectly righteous life. He never sinned. And then after living that perfectly righteous life, what did he do? He went to the cross and he died. Why did he die? He died to pay the full penalty for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. That is the gospel. And he did that to accomplish something for us. By his righteous life and his atoning death and his glorious resurrection, Jesus Christ purchased for us a free and full salvation. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what Christ accomplished on the cross. It's a gift. But how do we receive this gift? 
One, one verse I always quote in helping people understand how we receive this gift is the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is how we receive this free gift. Now notice that when Jesus tells us how to receive this gift, there are no works involved. Repentance is not a good work. It is something that takes place in your heart. It is you turning away from sin and turning toward God, desiring to be saved by Him and to live for Him, all the while knowing that you can't do that unless He saves you. That's repentance. What is faith? Faith is not a good work. Faith is you entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ without reservation. It is you trusting him to save you and to rule you because you see he's supremely valuable. He's worth giving up all to have. He's that pearl of great price, that treasure hidden in the field that you're willing to give up everything in order to have. The only work that saves us is the work of Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith is not a work. Repentance and faith is you resting your whole life upon someone else's work, the work of Jesus Christ. And the moment that we do that, the moment that we repent and believe, God forgives us of all our sins. He credits the righteousness of Christ to our account. He declares us righteous. He adopts us as his sons and daughters, and he gives eternal life to us. And he does all of that based on whose work? Jesus' work, not your work. So we need to keep that gospel firmly in mind when we begin to examine ourselves so that we don't start to rest one ounce of our eternal destiny on our own works. We keep it resting only on Jesus Christ. So let's, let's turn now to consider these other fruits that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives once we have repented and believed. Here's a principle to keep in mind. Repentance and faith are not works, but they do produce works. Repentance and faith are not works, but they do produce works. To see this, let's go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. This is where John the Baptist is ministering, and he's baptizing people. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him. Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, there's a distinction there that is made between repentance and fruit. They are not one and the same thing, but they are connected. Repentance produces fruit. The evidence that you have truly repented is that there is fruit being produced in your life. We see the exact same thing over in the book of Acts, chapter 26, which is where Paul is testifying before King Agrippa, and he's describing the ministry that Christ called him to. Acts chapter 26, 
starting in verse 19. There Paul says, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout the whole region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. There again, we see there's a distinction made between repentance and the deeds that are done appropriate to that repentance, but they are inseparably connected because repentance produces those deeds. One more spot where we see this is Ephesians chapter 2. Verses many of you know by heart. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. There Paul says, For by grace, what is grace? It is unmerited favor, the favor that you receive from God that you did not earn, that you did not work to receive. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Again, it's very clear. Our salvation does not come to us through our works. It comes to us through faith, which is not a work. Why has God designed it this way? Verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God alone gets the glory for our salvation. But then look at verse 10, which says, for we are his workmanship. So it's not a result of our works. It's a result of God's working for us and in us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's language um, very similar to being born again. We are made a new creature in Christ. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When I would do evangelism and I would come across a Roman Catholic, I would always go to Ephesians 2 and I would read verses 8 through 10. And then I would ask them, which comes first? Your salvation, that is your new creation in Christ, or your works? And I would show them, salvation comes first. You have to be created in Christ before you can begin to do the works that God calls you to do. Salvation produces the works. And it's the same sort of thing with, with that part of our salvation, which is our receiving of it, that faith that we have. Faith produces obedience. Salvation produces obedience. Now, think back to Matthew 3 and Acts 26. John, talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when he spoke to them of repentance, what did he challenge them to do? He said, perform good deeds or bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He commands them to bear the fruit, which implies what? That there is something about producing fruit that depends upon my actually trying, my actually striving to produce that fruit for the glory of God. And we saw the same thing in Acts 26. Paul said uh, his ministry consisted of him calling people to repentance and to perform deeds appropriate to that repentance. There's a challenge there for you to actively 
pursue the production of that fruit in your life. But there's something else that the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches us that this fruit that we're responsible to pursue, that we're responsible to see cultivate in our lives, this fruit is ultimately produced by someone else. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to see this, this paradigm here in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work it out. The salvation that you already possess by faith in Christ, by the grace of God alone, work that out. Seek that your life match what God has done for you. Work it out, which implies your effort. He says, work it out with fear and trembling. Take it serious. But then look at what he says in verse 13. Why are we to strive for this? For it is God who is at work in you to do what? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So once you come to Christ and you find these new desires to obey that you didn't have before and you strive to obey, you can't pat yourself on the back for that because the one who gave you those desires was not you yourself, but the God who's at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this fruit, the glory of it, belongs to God alone. Next, let's go to Galatians chapter 5. We see this same dynamic here. Galatians chapter 5. Starting in verse 16. I encourage you to read verses 16 through 24. I won't read all of that here, but look at verse 16 of Galatians 5. What does Paul command believers to do? He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. That's something you do. You are to walk by the Spirit. You are to put forth the effort and the concentration, the diligent striving to walk by the Spirit. And if you do that, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Instead, you'll carry out the desire of who? The Spirit. Drop down now to verse 22. So we've seen that our effort is required in producing this fruit, but notice who gets the credit for the production of this fruit. Verse 22. But the fruit of who? The Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the Spirit's fruit. It's the fruit that He produces in our lives. He gets the credit for it. So, back to our original question. What activity should I see in my life from the Spirit if I'm a believer? I should see these fruits being produced. And yes, it involves my effort, but it's ultimately from Him. And if I'm a believer, I should see these things being produced in my life. Because 
salvation results in these things taking place in my life. And again, he's very specific about what we should see. This tells us what we should expect to see if I'm a believer. I should expect to see these things begin to be produced in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. I encourage you to write down uh, these passages where we see another list of fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives. One is Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, which are the Beatitudes, where Jesus describes what a true citizen of the kingdom is characterized by. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, these are things we are not naturally as unbelievers. These are things God makes us to be. So if I have the Holy Spirit in my life, these qualities that we find in the Beatitudes will begin to show up. Another one is the whole book of 1 John. One of the purposes of 1 John is that the ones he's writing to may come to be assured that they have eternal life. And he says various things that confirm that reality. Like, do you love the brethren? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he is the Christ? Do you confess your sins? If you see those things in your life, that should confirm to you, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus. I have eternal life. This brings us to the third part of answering this question. What kind of activity should I expect to see in my life if I'm a believer? What kind of spirit activity should I see? Well, when we read those lists, like Galatians 5 and Matthew 5, I'd venture to say that most of us, when we read those lists, we will feel at least a little bit uncomfortable. Why do we feel uncomfortable? Well, because we might see some of those fruits, but there may be other fruits that we don't see so much. And we may wonder, is that even present in my life? Well, a word of encouragement to you. That response, that response of concern that, boy, I don't really see this playing out in my life the way it should. That response is a spiritually healthier response to have than the response of reading that list and saying, yes, cross the board, I nailed it, 10 out of 10. I am good. Nothing to be concerned about. If that is your response, if you can read these lists and not feel any conviction and not realize that you still have a lot of growing to do, then that is a problem because you're probably not dealing with yourself as honestly as you ought to be. That same book that gives such a list, 1 John, also says in chapter 1, verse 8, that if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you can read those lists and, and just go away thinking I'm good without a second thought, you're much too confident in yourself. You don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand what he's calling us to be and to become as believers. But if you are responding appropriately to those passages, if you are turning from sin and you're trusting in Christ this morning, and when you read that list, you are sincerely concerned about the lack of fruit that you see in your life, it's important for you to be balanced in your thinking. Because if you're imbalanced, 
You will either say, hey, I'm good, or you will go off the cliff of despair. We need to be balanced in our thinking when we read these lists. We need to remember that the production of this fruit is not automatic. It takes time. Some Christians grow faster than other Christians. Some Christians' lives are more fruitful than other Christians. We see that in the parable of the sower. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. Do you remember this parable where Jesus gives uh, the, the word picture of various kinds of soil that the, the seed is being sown upon? And the seed represents the word of God, and the soil represents uh, the different responses of people to that word of God. Well, in chapter 13 of Matthew and verse 23, Jesus explains the good soil, the soil that received the word of God and bore fruit from it. And this is what he says in chapter 13, verse 23. And the one on whom, good, uh, on the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. We see here that every believer... Every person with a heart of good soil bears fruit, but not every believer will bear the exact same amount of fruit. Not only that, but we learn from other scriptures that often there is going to be bad fruit mixed in with the good. And why is that? It's because we still have our sinful flesh to contend with. That is what, if you read Matthew, or, uh, Galatians 5, 16 to 25, you see that. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh so that you do not do the things that you please. I want to just take a moment to read something very similar in Romans chapter 7, where Paul speaks of this war that takes place in the life of the believer, this battle between the spirit, or as he describes it, you know, that new part of you that rejoices in the law of God, the battle that takes place between that part of me and my flesh that still longs for what is wrong. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Paul there says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And he goes on like that through the rest of the passage. And that is the tension. That is the conflict that we as believers feel. We want to do what God wants us to do. And sometimes by the grace of God we do, but other times we slip into doing what our flesh wants to do. So as believers, we will see fruit produced. We will see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness produced in our lives. But we have to remember, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be unblemished on this side of heaven. We need to understand that and expect that war to be there. Now be careful, because some of you may take that as an excuse to be lazy in your walk with Christ. 
If you think that what I've just said is grounds for you to slack off in following Jesus and to start playing around in sin, well, maybe I, I can sin some here, but tomorrow I'll make sure to do what the Lord wants me to do. If that is your attitude, you need to seriously ask yourself if you have truly come to Christ for salvation. Because if you are saved, you should desire every part of your life to bring glory to God. And you should be striving to pursue Christ. But in your sincere striving to follow the Lord, if you look around you and you see certain people who seem to be far off ahead of you in the race of faith, running at a pace that you have a hard time understanding, do not assume from that 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 means that you're not on the race, in the race at all, just because you're not running at the same pace. You're striving, you're trying, but you keep stumbling and you keep faltering and you look up and you see these other people way off ahead of you. Don't just assume that that means you're not in the race. Or if you're following Christ on the straight and narrow path, just because you're not at the head of the line, don't assume that that means you're not on the path at all. There's different measures of growth and and speed at which believers grow, and God is ultimately sovereign over that. As long as you are truly trusting in Christ, and that is manifesting itself in your life by your diligent pursuit of Christ, how you stack up against someone else really doesn't matter. All that matters is that you're in the race, that you're on the straight and narrow path. Where you place when everybody's finished doesn't matter. Remember Jesus' conversation with Peter, when he told Peter how Peter was going to die. And Peter looks and he sees John following and he says, Lord, what about this man? And what did Jesus say to him? Peter, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. We don't look around at everybody else and compare ourselves to them and draw conclusions for that. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And whether I'm at the back of the pack or the head, doesn't matter as long as I am looking to him and I am following him. How do you know if an apple tree is alive? Is it only alive if every single branch is loaded down with apples? No, if just one branch and one twig has a bud on it or a flower or an apple, that means it's alive. It may be hard to tell it's alive. It may be sickly, but it is alive. So we need to temper our expectations of what our lives will look like when the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And we'll get more into this next week, but I have to, to stop there. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy uh, when we talk about these things to get imbalanced, to not emphasize your grace enough, and then uh, to, when we're trying to hit both extremes, those who are too confident, who are in sin, but they think they are being faithful, those people need to be challenged. They need to be afflicted. They need to be concerned about their apathy, and they need to run to you. But then there's other people who are afflicted, and they're bearing fruit, but they're so melancholy-spirited that they struggle to see the fruit. 
And Lord, we want them to be comforted. We don't want them to be distraught and despairing. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and give to each person what they need to hear, that you would challenge those who are too confident in themselves, and that you would comfort those who, who are too hard on themselves and not looking enough to you. Lord, help each one to look to you. Help each one to rest in your grace. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.